Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Andrew Oliver, president of Oliver Bonaccini Restaurants in Toronto. Andrew oversees all OMB operations and provides the strategic roadmap for the company's growth. Before his appointment to president in 2012, Andrew was the driving force behind the unprecedented development of OMB's event business. In addition to Andrew's in-depth knowledge of the hospitality industry, he provides financial acumen to the company having worked in alternative asset management for a hedge fund and private equity group. He sits on the board of IQ Food Company, Pizzeria Libretto, and Sunnybrook Next Generation for the Sunnybrook Foundation. Welcome, Andrew, and thanks for being here today. Thanks very much for having me. So, Andrew, Oliver and Bonaccini um, has become really quite a large company in recent years. And as someone who's followed uh, the company's history for longer than in the industry for longer than I'd like to admit, I know the company has gone through a lot of changes in the last five, six years. Can you give our listeners an overview of what's currently under your umbrella as maybe a lot of people don't realize just uh, the breadth of what you cover? Yeah, sure. So we, we, we definitely have been growing in, in pre-COVID. I think our average growth annually was between 25 to 30 percent. From 2014 to 2019, which which was quite expansionary for us, um, we have 26 chef-driven restaurants and 39 private dining room spaces, 10 large-scale event venues. Uh, as far as we know, we're the largest event producer in North America. Doing uh, last year, we did just over 20,000 unique events. Wow! Um, and we we work with, uh, as you mentioned, uh, IQ Foods, where we're not not only am I on the board, um, but we're, we're we're an active shareholder, uh, Pizzeria Libretto, and have helped them grow. Um, you know, I think we have, you know, when you look at all of that together, you know, some, you know, 65, 70 business units across the country. Um, and and we really focused the majority of what we have are, are unique concepts. Uh, albeit, again, we have, you know, nine or 10 IQ Foods, four librettos, a handful of cafe grills, national beer halls, um, and things like that. But we, we, we really got a very large breadth and depth from you know quick service QSRs all the way to fine dining at Canoe Auberge and, and places like uh, Bridget Bar in, in in Calgary. That's pretty impressive. I remember when your dad opened uh, Oliver's Bakery. That's how long ago that was. Um, so to see that kind of growth is it's just pretty awesome. Uh, well done. I mean, I know I know you've been very um, focused on on driving the expansion in the last few years. So so that's great news. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, with a company that size, what has this lockdown been like for you and your company? Um, and maybe you can just go through the various changes that have had to hit most of your units or, or at least some of the bigger ones. Yeah, look, I, th- I think at the, the early days of this pandemic, um, you know, we, we, I want to say that we saw this coming and, and, you know, there's so many things in, in hindsight that would have uh, would have loved to have done and 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 protect ourselves more by shorting the market or whatever it was, um, but but even the last couple of weeks of February and then and then clearly in March it, the writing was on the wall that it was it, it seemed to be much more a matter of not if this was going to hit Canada but but when given the government didn't close down borders didn't do a lot of things that that I think in retrospect were mistakes, 
Um, and I know that we kept telling people, look, start buying less with suppliers. Like, you know, we're starting to see volumes really slow down. And effectively, you know, with billions of dollars in inventory uh, at any given time, an immediate shutdown is, is, is a challenge. Um, I still remember having the executive call with our team saying, guys, like, you know, what are we doing here? If we think we're going to be closing down in the next two or three weeks, and we think that we're putting not only potentially, you know, again, at this time, everything was new, you know, our guests and, and staff at risk, should we not lead and just close? Should we not say, this is crazy? Like, if people are saying this is going to happen, we could be a problem, we could be the essence of our business itself is spreading this virus. Should we not say we have to close? And that was crazy hard. So did you have to, did, did you take that step with some of those yeah, um, so, units? So, so look across, you know, we closed first in Toronto and Montreal or Ontario and Montreal first, and then, and then Alberta shortly thereafter, because it wasn't so bad there. Mm -hmm. but we were on the call and said, look, if the government's not going to shut us down, it's, it, we, we have to do the right thing and just shut down. And so we only shut down three or four days before I think they, they mandated the closure anyway. Right. But our hope was, look, the sooner we shut down, the less this virus spreads, the sooner we're all going to get back to work, the less people will die, the less it will cost the healthcare system. Let's do the right thing and assume the government's going to be there to do the right thing to help us out. And so, you know, it was a crazy surreal experience from making the decision. Uh, I think it was on a Wednesday. We got thrown for a loop that one of our partner venues shut down um, the day we were trying to roll things out and hadn't given us a heads up. But, but, but effectively, within a very short period of time, we laid off, you know, in Ontario, in, in Quebec, 1,700 employees. We left a dozen employees. That was it. And then effectively across the country, between Libretto IQ and Concord, it was closer to 3,000, 3,500. Incredible. Um, and, 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 and look, it's what you had to do to survive. And I think we sat here and we, we looked at the numbers as to how much money in the millions we were going to lose in inventory how much money we'd have going out the door, paying everyone's vacation pay and holiday pay and all that stuff that you know, we have to pay and it's the right mm -hmm. thing to do to pay, but you never assume you're gonna have <clears throat> 3,000 of your employees take vacation in the same two weeks. At the same time, yeah. And, <clears throat> and at the same time had zero revenues coming in. And so, you know, for a group of our size, you know, that was millions and millions of dollars. Um, so, so that took a long time to figure out how to do it and, and, and trying to manage, making sure we did our best to reach every employee. And so, you know, look, the bigger you are, uh, there's a lot of benefits to being bigger, but the, the bigger you are, there's a lot of things that are then compounded and made much harder to try and reach everyone to have it where they don't hear via press release that mm -hmm. we should close down and that they're not going to be working or not. And, and, and we did our absolute best to do that. We were most certainly not, not perfect, um, but that that was the reality in those early days. And 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 look, we're, we are we are in a halo effect right now. August is as good as it's going to get for my industry, in my opinion, for the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you have patios open. You have governments that have allowed us to increase the size of our patio in some cases for those lucky enough to have them. And now with indoor dining, um, as well as the wage subsidy, um, I don't think like August is as good as it gets. And, and so, you know, I was on. BNN a couple of weeks ago and said, look, if you're, if you're not, if you're not making it work right now in August, I, I feel you really should be looking about don't, don't, don't put more of your own personal capital or whatever at risk, because if you're, if you're not able to make it work in the month of August, you know, winter is coming and it's going to be brutal. And, and if people think the worst of, of bankruptcies, the worst uh, for our industry has happened, that's unequivocally wrong. Come November, December, and January, I think you're going to see half the industry fail. Uh, based on the government support that we have now.
Right. Those are pretty dire words, Andrew. And, and, and I totally understand where you're coming from, because right now, as you said, the patios are open and that's doing, you know, that's great for most restaurants. But you know what the weather is like here in this country. So that's not going to last forever. So, so Andrew, um, when you made that tough decision at the beginning to close most of your units, were you able to do any pivoting right away or did you stay closed for a period of time, kind of re-examine what you wanted to do and then make the, made the decision? Look, when we decided we wanted to close, um, we took a week off and then we opened three places uh, for takeout only. Um, uh, and, and effectively where we had a hard time was, was that also morally right to ask employees to go back without really knowing what was going on? And again, there wasn't, despite this virus being in China in November, December, our government getting briefed on it in January and all these other things, there wasn't a lot of guidance as to what should you or shouldn't you do? How do you operate then a, a, a kitchen safely? So we did our best to try and figure that out. We, we asked our employees and said, look, if, if we can't get people who want to do this, then we won't do this. But if there are folks that want to try this, let's try this. But I can tell you in those first two, four, five weeks of this, everyone was scared. And I was terrified saying, geez, what happens if someone gets this and mm -hmm. I put them in harm's way? Um, and so I think that was very, very fearful. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm fearful of the economic collapse of our industry. But I also don't want to have it where, where, where people are, are going to get sick and potentially have, 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 have life-changing consequences. Um, so, so we did pivot. Um, um, early on into takeout with a handful of our places. And then after that, when people got a little bit more comfortable that with spacing and masks and sanitation and all that kind of stuff that you could potentially run things a little bit uh, uh, better, we also then went and said, look, how can we help? What can we do to help? And we started doing meals for frontline workers. And and and, and I think we've done tens of thousands of meals now, I believe, um, um, uh, for frontline workers. And then we eventually said, okay, let's do grocery. Grocery lines, you know, going to the grocery store became a problem to people and especially seniors are waiting 90 minutes in line in crowded areas. We were like, well, that's clearly not a good solution. And, and grocery stores, I think in Canada stepped up huge and I, I've got nothing but admiration for those guys of mm -hmm. doing a great job and, and continuing to do a great job. We said, look, if we can stop one person from getting this and then spreading it by delivery groceries, uh, let's do that. And, and if, the, if the upside was we could bring back 5% of our workforce, as long as we weren't losing money, because we most certainly were not making money doing it, um, we figured that that was our, our moral obligation to be part of a solution to try and bring the economy back, you know, help, help people not contract uh, COVID. And so we did, we did um, pivot there. And, and now in recent weeks, you know, being the largest event group uh, in the country, we're doing, you know, we've now, you know, done weddings again. And, and even though we started with ceremonies of 10 people, now we're up to 50 people. And, and again, adhering to all the rules that we have, um, you know, it's still down, nine, you know, the events business is down 98%. The restaurant business is down, you know, 60, 65 percent. Mm -hmm. um, um, but you have had to pivot. They're by no means solutions. They, they are all, all those things really have done is is made the hole that we continue to dig ourselves, uh, that find ourselves that is getting deeper um, is just we're slowing the speed of, 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 of that kind of demise more than anything else. So are you still doing the grocery delivery now? Yeah, we, 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 we are. And it, and it has changed and evolved throughout, you know, in the first eight weeks of doing it, uh, yeast and flour, um, <laughs> you know, which, which was impossible to find um, in any grocery store, you know, because we would buy bags of, uh, you know, 10 kilos or, or 50 kilo bags of flour, we'd package them up and sell them. They were unequivocally the number one sellers yeah. uh, by number of units sold and all that kind of stuff for the first eight weeks. And 
And I think in the last eight weeks, we haven't sold one bit of flour or yeast. Uh, I think everyone's got that stockpiled where, where, wherever they have in their pantries or whatever. Um, and, and where we pivoted and has done very well for us and, and we're super proud of is, is kind of OMB at home meal kits where you can get uh, restaurant quality food um, um, and meal kits that are chef inspired, that are, that are either super, super easy to a little bit more complicated um, and, and kind of, you know, especially now with, with, with no, no daycares and, 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 and babysitting even just being questionable, are you allowed to hire babysitters so you can go out for a dinner? Well, folks with kids, now you can bring your OB meal home, your Selby dinner, your, your, your canoe of Echo Bears dinner home to you, um, and, and that's still going well for us. Excellent. So you mentioned the events and, you know, your company is well noted for all the events that you do and you've, you've grown in that area quite significantly. Um, you're, you are doing events again, you said. So basically, is it just small weddings or is it other kind of events? And how has that worked? Because um, I would think that people are still a little skittish, obviously, about getting together in groups of people. So how have you dealt with that issue? Yeah, so, so we started actually doing virtual events. So we've done you know, countless cooking demos and, and we'll drop off the kits and corporations that, that want to kind of stay engaged with our employees, given that their offices are shut. Um, so we started with doing them where you didn't have to be in the same space or, or rooms with people. And then, and then look, at the end of the day, people want to celebrate what they want to celebrate. And, and though they're not the weddings they envisioned, uh, a lot of folks are saying, look, let's just do the ceremony with a small group. We'll do the party when we can. Mm-hmm. We, we want to get married. We don't want to delay getting married and, 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 and delay life. Right. Um, now you're at a point where, where folks who, you know, though, again, it wasn't the norm, people who used to do brunch weddings or lunch weddings or afternoon weddings, where it wasn't so much uh, about the party and the dancing and the and, and all that, we're seeing more of those. And so, look, again, we are still down 90% comparatively to what we would typically do. But there are those out there saying, look, we need to get on with our lives. We need to move on. We're, we're comfortable with, with the risks. And, and again, I think being a larger company that takes health and safety as seriously as we do, um, um, we most certainly um, are, 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 are lucky that people are coming to us saying, hey, can you do this with us? And look, there's often times where now we are going to clients and saying, we can't do this. What you're asking us to do is not within the guidelines that, that we've been set mm-hmm. up to do. And, and even if it's at your residence or somewhere else private, we are not going to want to, you know, our staff don't want to do events that might put them at risk. I mean, they're, of course. they're just like everyone else. Um, and so, so there are, there are people who are willing to do events right now and there are, there, there it, it's growing. Um, you know, I'd say two months ago, the amount of calls we were having for events was down 90%. I think we're down about 70% now. And so that's, you know, a, a, a two and a half times increase in the number of inquiries, sure. but the vast majority of them are for less than 50 people. And, and again, that's a huge problem for an industry that, that you just can't make math work when, when your numbers are, are, are constricted as much as they are right now. So the reality is that, you know, until we get a vaccine, basically, and this is going to continue longer than we all want it to continue. What is that going to do to your events business? Have you basically said, okay, let's, let's be real. We're not going to have any big events for the next year. Is, is that the mindset that you're going in with? Or, or are you just taking this, um, you know, month by month and assessing as we go? Yeah, I think, I think we look our, 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 as a business leader, we've got to, and my advice to any restaurateur is this will end. I don't know when it's going to end. And so whether it's six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, and whether it's from natural herd immunity, if you look at what's going on in Sweden right now, their, their, their deaths per million compared with Denmark are not that different anymore uh, after that initial spike. And, and, and you're sitting here saying, okay, well, wait a second. They didn't do anything uh, to shut things down really comparatively. And, mm-hmm. and so I don't know that it's just a vaccine that'll necessarily get things back to normal. And, and, and hopefully it is, because I think 
a vaccine or a drug with actual efficacy, like with H1N1 with, with Tamiflu as an example, you know, that is the immediate fix that'll be kind of a game changer over a six month period, maybe. Right. Um, uh, I, I think that it's still too early to say what will or will not happen and what will eventually be safe. We most certainly are not budgeting next year that we're going to do events for 500 people. It's just not something that we think um, is is likely, uh, or, or, or when I say likely, is, is, is probable enough that I should bet my business on it. And so we're banking that we'll hit a second wave. We're definitely hoping we won't. And, and though I think it's, it's immediately becoming more likely that the second wave will not be as bad as people have anticipated, you know, my, my vision right now is plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, but I do think that as more and more of the data comes out from countries, and, and again, I'm, I'm by no mean, means a doctor here, I think that doctors have to do the same. They have to hope, plan for the worst, expect the worst, and then hope things get better. Uh, again, when you look at the data that's coming out more and more and more, and yes, this is definitely worse than the flu, I think as, as this prolongs and goes, you're seeing that there, that even in the U.S. with caseloads hitting record highs of new cases every day, mm-hmm. their death rate, albeit at a thousand for a 380 million person population, you know, their death rate annually is not going to go up more than one or two percent. And so right. I, I think there will eventually come a trade off of people saying, look, h- how many more people will die from the lockdown and restrictions than the virus itself? And let's look at that. And I think look at B.C. as a case where. You know, though a lot of people are blaming CERB and the amount of money the government's given to people that don't always have it, but as I understand it, almost every month for the last two or three months, there's been a 100% increase in the number of deaths from overdoses in, in British Columbia, which is far greater than the number of deaths from COVID. Right. And so here you go, well, wait a second, more people are now dying from overdose deaths in Vancouver or in, in, in BC than COVID. Again, yes, we have the restrictions, so who knows what it would be without them. But but at a certain point, you got to go and say, how many people are going to die because of mental health issues from not getting yeah. uh, checks for for prostate cancer, or breast cancer, or any of these types of things? I think those numbers are going to going to shock people. And when you look at you know the number of people, I think historically, I think the number historically in Canada is twenty thousand or thirty thousand people dying from the regular flu every season, as an estimate. We're well below that for COVID. And again, we've, we're well below that for COVID because of the restrictions, I'm sure. But eventually, I think someone's going to have to start looking at the math and saying, you know, this is not as bad as it could have been as far as the death rate goes. Mm-hmm. It's still tragic. But let's look at the converse side of it and saying, well, wait a second. Are, are, is the cure for this worse than, than, than the alternative? Yeah, no, a lot there to consider for sure. Um, going back to, to some of your restaurants and what you, you know, you had to close. I know with Canoe, you were undergoing a huge renovation as you were celebrating, I believe, your 25th anniversary, which is a great milestone. Um, has that now reopened? I believe it has. And um, what did that do to that whole process of renovation for that? Did you have to put it on hold for a while or did no, you? No, no. So we, we had the amazing luck of closing for two and a half months, opening for about 17 days and then closing five months to the day and reopening. <laughs> and so we spent millions upon millions of dollars forego for, for, for uh, we, we had to forego millions of dollars of revenues while we were closed only to reopen to shut down. And so that was that was a real painful moment. Um, uh, but we were very, very lucky. Like you said, Canoe's been around 25 years. We just renewed the lease with, with our partners there, Cadillac Fairview, our landlord there, who's been phenomenal throughout this whole, whole thing. Um and uh, we 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 are I'm super proud to say now that we've been allowed to open indoors we are open indoors uh, I was I was there the second night we opened it was great it was a little bit different but it was still great um, and 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 that has reopened and 
And for all intents and purposes, I think our staff there is super keen and happy to be back. And um, I think I think you know lunch is something that we're we're, we're debating whether we're going to be allowed to reopen just because of the elevator constraints. Right. Um, but right now for dinner we're open and um, yeah, hopefully hopefully it continues to be as busy as it is now. So how busy is it right now? I mean, when you went in, uh, I mean, what are the restrictions like? I know there were some, you know, 50% capacity was thrown out, but then it was more physical distancing of six feet. Well, what is it now? Yeah, so 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 that's a big, big thing that's super important for people to realize. And again, it's, it, I don't think the government's trying to do anything funny here at all. I just think it's, you know, by saying 50%, everyone's like, oh, you're getting at least half your business. And the fact of the matter is that's just 100% not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, for July and August, let's forget that for a bit because the patios have expanded and all that kind of stuff. So you, you, we are in this, again, this 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 non-real long-term uh, halo phase that is that is good for our industry. Um, but places like Canoe, you know, we can only fit in 35% of the, of the regular number of guests uh, and tables. And so despite the fact that we're down, um, uh, occupancy can be 50%. You only get 35%. And so our sales at dinner are down, um, you know, 70% or, or, or 60%, let's say, but the business is down, down more than 50% given that we've lost lunch service. And so, again, it, it is better than nothing. And it works because of the financial aid that we have. Mm-hmm. It works, uh, you know, Canoe didn't qualify for the rent program. We pay too much rent, uh, unfortunately for us. <clears throat> um, and like so many others in urban cores and especially in Toronto, um, but we've been very blessed that our landlord is working with us. They understand the challenges we have. But without rent relief from our landlords and without the government wage program, you know, I'm very, very concerned. Come October, November, December, as the SUS program winds down and comes to an end with uh, the two-meter distancing rules, which is which is the most that any other jurisdiction has. A lot of places in Europe are one and a half to one. Uh, the math just doesn't work. And so, so that is really what, I guess, keeps me up at night is saying, you know, not only is the government support ending when patio season ends, it's ending mm-hmm. relatively abruptly. Um, right. And again, I, I, to me, uh, I, I like to look at things in a common sense world of saying support should be maybe tied to restrictions the government's imposing on us as opposed to just saying, hey, this is what we think how long it should be as opposed to you know, what the actual impacts are. But So, Andrew, with all the different types of restaurants you have and and the event venues, um, obviously the rent component is a huge factor for you. I know you're in a lot of the downtown cores where rent is really, really high. You mentioned that your landlords have been very good working with you. Has that been across the board or have you had issues uh, with some landlords that, you know, you still have had to pay? and, And as you say, you know, that program has certain good features, but a lot of flaws as well. How would you rate that program um, of the rent subsidy? And would you like to see it uh, maybe morph if this continues uh, for the longer term? Yeah, so so look, I've, I've been advocating since week two with governments and starting with the municipal government all the way up to, to the, 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 premier, uh, the, uh, the premier and then all the way up to the prime minister's office. Um, look, I don't think anyone would argue that the secret program has been nothing short of a disaster on, on, on a slew of disastrous programs. And, <laughs> and, 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 and again, I think that the proof is in the pudding. You know, I think in the first two, three months of this thing, only five or 6% of landlords applied. And, um, you know, look, my family invested in some buildings that we had restaurants in and the restaurants failed, but the real estate survived. And we've applied and, 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 and battled through all the paperwork and the, the nonsense You'd almost be hard pressed to think, and, and if you didn't know any better, that the government created a program and made it so difficult so that they wouldn't get uptick. And, and I, I truly believe a lot of people, including institutional landlords, believe that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, look, it is not a it is not a small business uh, rent relief program because small business has no voice 
in the program. So, so this was a, a real estate program where the government said, oh, we assume people will use this because landlords will be better off. And, and in most cases, landlords are going to be better off and, and the uptick will get higher and higher as larger landlords navigate through it. But, but again, the rules are so convoluted and, and, and backwards, they, they just don't make sense, which is why there's been so much complaints. And if you have, a, you know, if you have the bad fortune of having a landlord that's a developer, there is, you are evicted. I mean, Don Alfonso's got evicted because they want to develop the land. That is a yes. perfect example of how someone who's invested millions of dollars in the Canadian economy, paid tens of millions of dollars in taxes, has been left out to, to dry and fail because of a failed government policy, which is, which is really a shame. Mm -hmm. um, uh, ultimately, uh, yes, I think they should be changing this program. I think it is completely backwards the way that they have the program. I think it's insane that that, that if your rent is over fifty thousand, you somehow are better able to pay the rent. The higher it is, than the lower it is. Justin Trudeau three times announced a a mid-size, large-size rent relief program that was never enacted, um, which is which is shocking that the prime minister himself had announced program but then never came to fruition. Um, so I think we've been pushing and saying, look, come September, can you work on a program to work directly with hospitality workers and, and owners because we are we are on the front lines of this. There, there's there's lots. We're hurt here, but there's there's you know even even industries like Rogers as an example, communications, you know they're qualifying for programs despite the fact that they made two hundred seventy five million dollars in profit last quarter. Something's wrong with these programs, and so we have had to mostly rely on on our landlords and 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 their belief that this is a short term or medium term impact, and they'd rather have us here than not. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever we can do to help them would be great because landlords have done nothing wrong and landlords in, in places, especially in Toronto, they play uh, commercial landlords pay a ridiculously high amount of our, our property taxes that fund our school or uh, not our school, but they fund huge amounts of the services in the city of Toronto uh, and other municipalities that are not going to be funded. And so you, you really, my hope here is that the government will say, okay, look, we've, they've been very quick to admit, uh, the, the, the countless mistakes they made, and they've been showing that they're willing to adjust to a certain extent. Um, but I think the secret program is one where, where on its foundation, it is just so overwhelmingly flawed that the hope is they would, you know, announce something new in September. Unfortunately, and we when we had conversations with government where it seemed that that was likely going to happen. Unfortunately, uh, given the scandals uh, that this government is has been facing. And now the announcement yesterday that despite having the least amount of parliamentary activity almost ever, um, uh, definitely during a crisis, that they've now probed parliament for another five or six weeks. Exactly. It is very scary to see, well, what about all the things you said you were going to do starting in September? Are those just now not happening? Um, is, 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 is scary. But um, we're going to continue to engage, continue to talk to them. And, and where I can give them credit is, despite them consistently not seemingly taking advice from people in industry, uh, they they are still taking our call, so hopefully that's that's something. And 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 one day eventually maybe they'll they'll say, hey, we should we should listen to those that are actually in the business as opposed exactly. to if, you know, literary majors or or, or or drama degrees or whatever it is. So, yeah, no, that's a very good point, and and a lot of restaurateurs have raised that very same comment over the last few months and discussions. I, I know you were very actively involved in the beginning with the group, uh, you know, called Save Hospitality. Um, and some of these issues that you're talking about have really been raised with, with that group. Um, are you still involved with that? And, uh, you know, what, what's your role in, in this group now? 
Yeah, so I, I was one of the founders with the guys at the Ascari Group, and and oddly enough, we've never met face to face. We're trying to plan a lunch, a distance lunch, <laughs> in our spots. But um, look, it all just happened happenstance. And 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 my uh, some folks in my family have been in government relations over the years, and they kind of said, "Hey, this is how you can try and get change. Try and write the legislation that you want to have happen. Submit it. Do all these different things." And mm-hmm. and and we were doing that, uh, or I was doing that with some folks in, in at OMB to kind of say, "Okay, look, if we're leaders here. Hopefully, they'll listen to a group." That has been successful in this industry, and, and think that we're we're doing a good job. And and these uh, John and Eric had, had been doing their own thing independently, and, and we got put in touch by the folks at um, um, uh, Key Springs um, um, and um, at the Vine, and uh, and they said, hey, you guys are working on some similar things. What, you know, you guys should partner. Let's see how we can grow this to do something. And so it naturally evolved. I think we've got to be representing over hundred thousand people now that have lost their jobs or had lost their jobs at one point during this pandemic. Um, and I would say that we are continuing to do our best to advocate. I think that it gets, it, you know, as we've had, to, as we've had to focus more and more attention because it does come at the cost of your business when you're trying to advocate and, and deal with government. Of course. And it is by far one of the most frustrating experiences in my life to, to continuously show people, you know, connecting the dots, A, B, C, this is what's happening. And even Circa is an example. We said, if you make it, at the will of the landlords, this will not work. This will not work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. We agree. We agree. We agree. We decided to go that way anyway. We think you're wrong. And then you're like, we weren't wrong. How can you fix it? And then they're like, well, it's really hard to fix it once we've done it. And you're like, but we told you this would happen countless times. And everything we said had happened on this program or the next program or the next program. Why do you keep doing things uh, uh, contra to those who are in the industry? And, and, you know, at one point we had landlords on side, Like we had, we had a plan that we had with the landlords. Wow. Did you guys work with us and endorse these plans with us, with the government and, and, and effectively the government said, no, we know better than landlords. We know better than the business operators. Incredible. Right? Having no one with real business experience in cabinet in the liberal party, we're just going to do what we're going to do and, and, and hope it works. And I think that is why, again, we in Canada, I think per capita have spent the second most second to only the United States on relief, yet I think right now we're ranked 17th in the G20 uh, as far as economic benefit and response. So you sit here and go, we've spent the second most. Incredible. And we are one of the worst off by a long shot and now have accumulated deficits far greater than anyone else outside of the United States. And you got to sit here and go like, eventually someone's got to sit there and go, look, maybe we should change tax. And, tax, and yeah. A little smarter saying, you know, our, our industry originally wanted a $10 billion bailout tied to previous year sales and we proved to them, here's the model. And I think at one point we showed them 14 profit and loss statements from businesses like IQ Foods that do under a million to venues that do 15 to 16 million saying the the problems that our industry faces, it doesn't matter big or small. They're very similar at the same time. And here's why we need XYZ. And here's why as an industry that paid governments uh, an estimated $32 billion last year, you can't afford to have half of this fail because if half of us fail, you have a $16 billion cost in perpetuity until it comes back. And, and for whatever reason, we kept being told there's not the political will to save your industry, which I learned in political speak means we aren't going to lose any of your employees' votes. They're going to vote liberal whether we save them or not. Therefore, we're going to focus elsewhere. And, and that was probably one of the most disheartening things I kept hearing from the government. And there were folks that were in government that, that have been amazing and saying, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. I'm so sorry we can't get them to do the right thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, the government's doing what the government's doing. And, and, and all we can do is continue to push and advocate and saying, look, 
if things, if you feel you've done enough for our industry, why have 30% closed their doors already? How, how is that reasonable that yeah. every day hundreds of restaurants continue to close forever if you have done what you, what you have done? So obviously nobody's listening. And I guess the question is too, you know, there are associations in the industry that lobby on restaurateurs' behalf, whether they're provincial or national or local. Uh, what do you feel, you know, has been the case there? Are they doing a good enough job? What needs to happen to change either the messaging or to get people to listen to a group that has a lot of clout in the economy, but obviously is not being heard? So what's the problem? Yeah, look, obviously we do not have, uh, you know, there are some associations doing a great job uh, in our in our advocacy, but we're fragmented. And again, look, I'm partially blamed. We started Safe Hospitality because we were not happy with the advocacy was already there. Look, I think as an industry, the margins are so low, the thought of paying one or $2,000 a year to an association or government lobby group to try and corral such a fragmented group of people has just been nearly impossible. And so we, as an industry, and shame on us, uh, have been taken advantage by the government through excessive taxation mm-hmm. from previous to, to, to this. But at the same time, you know, you look at the wage subsidy that seemed to be brought in to help Air Canada with, with, with a fraction the number of, of people that it would benefit comparatively to, to our industry. I, I think that the governments take our industry for granted, don't realize how bad it will be at the end of the day when this fails. Uh, you know, Restaurant Canada had a change in, in in who's leading the charge there during this, which was a bit of a, um, you know, a negative. But but I also think that, um, you know, for whatever for whatever reason, we looked at hiring our own GA folks at the end of the day and campaigns and doing this and getting some of the larger guys to put money up to do it. Uh, even the CFIB, which has been great, and we've, we've talked to them, we've had great talks with them. This government uh, at the federal level, uh, because in Ontario especially, is just broke. I mean, it was very clear to me Ontario was broke and said, "Look, we only have money for healthcare. That's our goal." And and, and kudos to them. We have the lo- you know some of the lowest case counts per million in North America. I think we're fifth or something like that after places like the the, the, the Canadian Maritimes and and, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. Um, this government uh, seems to to be a fiefdom of of of, of a handful of people that just make are making decisions assuming they know best. And quite frankly, the other ministers and folks that we talk to are, they are listening. They are putting our proposals forward, but but between, you know, at the time, Christia Freeland, Katie Telford, Trudeau, um, and Morneau effectively, from what we were being told, I don't know this to be anything besides what we were told, mm-hmm. they were sitting there saying, we're gonna do what we think makes sense. We appreciate these guys saying what they are saying, but. They're just looking for a handout. They're just looking for this. It's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be this. It's not going to be that. And you're like, how do you how do you argue that when you're like, mathematically speaking, our industries cannot grow from the heart out. Our industries have to balance their budgets. They don't just balance themselves. And and I think when you have a mantra mentality that these folks are that are in charge and making these policy decisions, you know, they wanted to. They're they're sitting there saying, well, we wanted to do as much as we could, as quickly as we could, so we didn't do anything industry specific. I remember sending them, this is what other jurisdictions in the G7 and G20 did. Here's what they did for restaurants. Australia, I think within two weeks of this crisis had 450 unique economic programs from like a $250,000 program to a $200 billion program. Canada has like, don't get me wrong, you know, more than more than a dozen now, but at the time they had very, very few. And they said, mm-hmm. let's, just, let's just assume every business is the same. And Which all it isn't, yeah. businesses are the same. And you sit here and you go, well, with all due respect, I the fact that that the fact that right now 
And just think of how mind-boggling this is. And there's so much drama because of all the controversy going on with all the corruption and ethics violations and, <laughs> and more resigning, all these things. Like, think of how crazy it is we're dealing with that during the greatest on top of this. since the Depression. Put that to one side as far as, you know, why this government is still in power is mind-boggling. But, but, but put that to one side saying, in what realm of any world can any Canadian justify a government program that, that we qualify for SUS because our business is down 50, 50, 70%, whatever it is, and we're getting it, but it's still not enough uh, because of the rent issue. But that a company like Rogers Communication that made $272 million, paid $250 million in dividends last quarter, qualified in July for a $25 million wage subsidy. I don't know whether they've taken it or not, but the program that allows them to, and I don't blame Rogers for qualifying. They did nothing except for the fact no, of course. So you sit here and you go, in what world does it make sense that the Canadian banks also qualify for 25, 30, 40, $50 million? And, and I don't believe the banks are taking it. I think they're sitting here going, this is nonsense. But I think it matters that the government, like it should matter to the average Canadian and, and it should make restaurateurs irate that we're being told you're asking for too much. You're not, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. Yet people that are making not record profits, but hundreds of millions to billions mm-hmm. are also now qualifying for tens of millions of dollars. I sit here and go, the government has spent so much money on things that they shouldn't have. Uh, uh, and, and then are allowing groups like us that are literally on the front lines of this. We are being restricted by the government to open our restaurants at full capacity. And if that's what we need to do to, to squash this virus, fine, so be it, that's the right thing to do. But to then abandon that industry and, 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 and then say, we're gonna treat you the same as telecom industries that are making hundreds of millions and give them more support uh, than you guys, it's just, it's just mind boggling. None of it makes sense. And I mean, and just listening to you going through that just reinforces how none of it makes sense, but yet here we are. So Andrew, one of the, the negatives, obviously, restaurants and hotels are, are probably the, the biggest cult, you know, the biggest uh, victims of all of this that's going on. But I've seen surveys that say basically after this is done, one in two restaurants will be gone. And those yeah. are those are harrowing statistics. No, that's, that's best case scenario. That, that, that was my that's what I would have said two or three months ago. Uh, I, I think that, that one in two would be is the new base best case scenario. Uh, barring what we were hoping was going to be announced in September, we had made you know some uh, safe small business, and and and, got, and and us had been pushing the government to say no. We need a plan for industries and businesses that have had to be forced to have reduced occupancy. Again, now with the proving of Parliament and all these things, all of that's in flux. Who knows what's going to happen? But but there are real serious problems here. And and again, uh, I really hope that people from Main Street to Bay Street, when, when half the restaurants are gone, if not more. And again, I think that in the U.S. they're now estimating 90% will fail over the next 12 months. And they've received hundreds of billions of dollars in aid directly to that industry. Incredible. Without the government having an industry-specific plan, uh, uh, 50% is by far the best case scenario. It just, again, the math does not work that if you have 100% of your cost base, and then coming come winter, we're going to have 35% of the regular capacity in seats. I don't get how anyone thinks that works. And, and again, you got to remember, this problem is going to decimate uh, urban cores more than anything else. And we've mm-hmm. done huge things to try and uh, revitalize urban downtown cores to make them vibrant and this and that. And again, not upset that John Tory asked everyone not to go to work until September, but to do that while still charging property taxes at full rates makes no sense to me because that's been a bone of contention with our landlords of saying, 
look, we'll waive rent, but can you at least pay your, your property taxes? Um, um, it's, going to, it's going to be crippling as soon as the wage subsidy comes off, which starts in uh, September, it starts to, to wind down. Um, and, and that's the same time that the circle program ends. And that's the same time um, uh, uh, that, that we're gonna start seeing a slowdown in patio season. You're literally gonna see that August is the best month we have as an industry right now. And, and you better be able to, to, to get a little bit ahead and, and you should be able to get ahead with what's going on right now because, because comes October, November, December, uh, I just, I, I think that it's going to get really, really, really rough. And, and I think guys are going to try and hold on as long as they can, hoping for a good holiday season, hoping that people might still go out and things will change. But when all those bills come, come due in January, which is typically the month that guys go under, without government help and support, we're no longer talking about the guys on the fringe. Could they survive? Could they not? Those people, have, those thousands and tens of thousands of places have already gone bankrupt or, or, or into CCAA. Now you've got really good companies that are sitting there going, can we figure this out? Can we make it work? Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm very much, the 50% number is, is, is the best case scenario as I see it right now. So that question that you just asked, can we make it work? Can we survive? Let me turn that around to you. Can, can you make it work? Can you make it survive from your company perspective? Yeah, look, I, 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 I hope so. I mean, I think, um, I think we, we, from day one, what I, what we did was we got aggressive and we shut down very, very quickly. And we, we laid people off very, very quickly. Other companies waited weeks and months hoping it would only be a couple of weeks or a couple of days or a couple of this, uh, you know, quarters of pain. And, and my view from day one was you need to look at this as an 18 to 24 month problem. And we need to figure out how do we get to 24 months, however we have to do it. And if that means closing down for six months of the year until patio season, we looked at every iteration that we possibly could. We, we called and, and we have a great relationship with our bank and our bank has, has stood by us and has been nothing short of fantastic. Um, in supporting us and ensuring we're going to be there. And we've been fortunate that, look, not every single one of our landlords has been great. Um, you know, one or two of them have become predatory at this point. Um, and, and we're hopeful that that'll turn around and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to work through them. And, you know, where I would say two or three months ago, I thought every location would survive. I think we, we likely might shed one or two locations here and there, depending, because we are going to have to make tough choices to say, look, if this is going to be too much of a drag mm-hmm. between here and there, we, we, we have to then cut that off, unfortunately, um, to do so. And so with all that said, the other side of it, for a company like ours, I have never been shown more opportunities for growth than we are now. And, and though we have no capital to do it, we're working on creative solutions with, with our, our, our partners and, and, and uh, landlords to do this. So, you know, every restaurateur would be lying if they said 100% they can survive this. If this goes on for 10 years, no one survives. This goes on for five years, no one can survive this eventually without ma- massive systematic changes in government mm-hmm. support. We, we had a 18 to 24 month plan. We're six months into that. Uh, we feel confident we'll be, we'll be most certainly one of the last ones standing. Uh, so if, if, if 90% um, of, of us fail or 95, then I'd start to say, geez, we'll survive, but just be a much smaller company and, and ideally be able to grow that much more faster. But, um, you know, I, I sit there and I look at the smaller guys out there. And, and if you got caught at the wrong time and, you know, look at us, we had, we had two projects under construction canoe and, and then and another one in Scotia Place. If you had three restaurants only and you're trying to then support that versus 26, you know, it'd be like, think about it. The, the, the Michael Bonaccini and Peter Olivers that had three restaurants, had they, had they had a fourth one going, they likely would not survive. 
and everything good that they did for the city and jobs and investment and money and tens of billions of, or tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in tax never would have happened because because of just bad luck and timing. And so we, we feel confident <clears throat> we will be here. It's more a matter of what will that look like on the other side of this. So being a leader during these tumultuous times is, is a tough job. You know, every day there's there's new challenges to deal with. What do you think has been the biggest challenge for you as a leader of this huge company during this very turbulent time? Yeah, look, I think I think the decisions that, that, that as leaders that you make, uh, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, we we viewed them as being literally life and death, which was 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 uh, I don't want to say <clears throat> it's not what we signed up for, but it's not what you think when you own the restaurant business that that it's going to be life and death decisions and things like that, and so that was very hard and the weight of that was very, very hard. Um, and, and now I sit here and go, look, my, my obligation is to my vendors, uh, my landlords, uh, to everyone in our economic ecosystem to go and say, I'm going to do everything I can to make your lives better as best I can when we can. And, and it went from, you know, we need to survive uh, this to how do I save as many jobs as I possibly can? Because you know, we, as a larger company that's been around for 30 plus years in, in, in various forms, um, we have people who are unbelievably dedicated. You know, the bartender at Canoe is the same bartender uh, when we renewed for this next 25 years as we did for the first 25 years. We have people who have been here for a long time and believed in us. And I think we owe it to them to do everything we can to ensure, yes, it's going to be bumpy. Yes, there's going to be sacrifices for everyone along the way. But but it's, it's, it's a matter of <clears throat> how you try and lead by example by trying to do the right thing and surviving um, uh, as best you can. So, Andrew, do you think that some of the changes that have been fueled by COVID, you know, from a hygiene point of view, from a cleanliness point of view, the plexiglass, all of those things that we've heard ad nauseum about over the last few months, do you think some of those will remain part of standard operating practices uh, as we move forward in the future? Or do you think once this is done, everybody's going to pack those up and say, so long, you know, we don't want to see you again. What's going to happen on that front? Yeah, I, I think memories are short. So I think I think things will go back to normal much faster than people think. Um, I don't think you know, you're going to have plexiglass forever between tables. It's just not going to work. And I don't think you're going to have the same distancing between tables if you're giving a choice. I don't think you know servers wearing masks are. are, are I don't believe are going to be the norm again. I think I think if you look at it, it's it's it, it, it's more normal in other cultures, and 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 maybe it'll become less abnormal. But I don't think it'll be the norm by any means. I do think, you know, look, we have we have in Canada, obviously, in every jurisdiction, great health and safety practices to keep everyone safe and, and, and all of that. I think some of that might be augmented to a certain degree um, and will stay on just because, you know, we it's continuously improving the industry. But I think the 90 plus percent of things that we're living with over the last, you know, five or six months, that two or three years from now or a year after, the majority of that will just go away. And I, I think that our margins, again, in our industry are so low. I think Restaurants Canada says the margin's four and a half percent. You just can't afford it. So at the end of the day, that, that's the other side of the problem. And, you know, based on where the economy is going, um, I, I, I see a recession uh, potentially coming. And I see less disposable income so that, you know, in these times where you have increased costs, you want to raise prices. You know, the industry is really coming into this in a rough spot, especially in places like Alberta and, and Ontario, where it was only a few short years ago that minimum wage went up you know, 20 or 30% in a six month notice period. And so, you know, we've had a very rough go the last little bit. We were weakened by that for sure. And, and though, again, I think it's, it's important we have a livable wage and, and things like that. I think 
There's other ways the government could have done that by by reducing uh, income tax on the first you know thirty or forty thousand, as opposed to saying, hey, let's let's specifically target one industry. Um, but but no, I I I think people are going to go like weddings are going to have dancing again. People are going to go party. People are going to dance. People are going to go to do. People are going to sing. People are going to go to concerts. People are going to go on planes. Uh, people are going to go watch hockey games live. And, and I, I just I don't see. I don't know when that's going to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going to go back to offices. I mean, I don't know about you, but I I I love my kids. Um, <laughs> it's challenging. Anyone who says you can be as productive in a team environment. Maybe as a solo person or whatever it is, you can be as productive. But if you're working in a collaborative environment, how do you build a corporate culture without a corporate setting that is that is only Zoom? It just, it just, I do think things will go back, and I don't think it'll take nearly as long as people think. So, Andrew, one of the things we've heard a lot during this period is that you know the the restaurant industry, even prior to COVID, um, was structurally broken and flawed, and we've heard a lot about that in the last six months. Um, do you agree that structural changes need to be made to the business model moving forward? Because, you know, once this does end and we get back to some kind of normalcy, those problems are still going to be there. So how do you see that playing out in the future? Do we need to make some some huge change? Yeah, so so I don't even know how relevant that question is. And I don't mean that to be anything besides, I don't know how you go about making huge change because we're so fragmented. And so... You know, I think a lot of guys out there say, well, we got to all raise our prices. Well, that's great in principle to say, let's raise our prices for what it actually costs. But people will always try and price compete because that's how you get bums and seats. And so mm-hmm. saying those things kind of, I don't get how that works or doesn't work at the end of the day. You know, people now talking about getting rid of tipping again, which comes up every couple of years. Well, Danny Myers just reinstituted tipping during yes, COVID. Yes, I noticed. And I think that, you know, it's really important for the average person to know <clears throat> the systems in the U.S. and Canada are very, very different. And, and though there's no legislative mandate on tipping out, Danny Myers went from uh, a no-tip policy where he paid everyone and divvied up the money himself and all that and, 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 and everything, saying this doesn't actually work. It's not actually beneficial in the way that he had hoped. Here's what we're doing instead, which is we're going to tip out and make sure people in the back get some of the, the tips. We've been doing that in Canada for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, some of our restaurants, uh, I would say, are, are, are close to industry leading on that. But, it, but it's challenging to to... I don't know how you legislate something like that at the end of the day, and I don't think the government would get involved in doing it. Um, I think the bigger the bigger way to, to, to look at this from my my opinion on the structural changes, and again, I sit here and go, and I don't see how a government's gonna agree to this with, with deficits gonna be probably approaching half a trillion dollars by the end of the year is, our industry is so aggressively overtaxed because we don't have a proper lobby group. You know, we have, a, we have one of our venues in Toronto, <clears throat> our property taxes, just the property taxes are over 50% or $50,000 a month. That is a real problem. And, and <clears throat> when you look at that coupled with Ontario has some of the highest liquor tax uh, of any jurisdiction in North America, mm-hmm. definitely in Canada, or one of the highest in Canada, that is again something where if you're the government, it would be great for us to go and say, hey, can you, if, if we're only taking home a four and a half percent and then after tax, you're talking about like 2% of the profits, and we're collecting 32% of every dollar we generate goes to some government. You know, you want to talk about the, the, the wage gap. Uh, businesses get to keep one sixteenth of what the government takes from us. Name another industry that that happens in. It, it just doesn't happen. And so I think, I think structurally, if, if the government was serious about wanting to change our industry, it has to come at the cost of the government. Mm-hmm. And I think the government's going to go, well, why would we do that? And, of and 
That I think is one of the bigger problems we have in faces of industry is that that and, and Ontario is one of the worst, unfortunately, Ontario and Quebec on the liquor laws and everything. But you know, we as an industry are are really tax collectors for the government. Uh, and again, if if they're keeping <clears throat> 16 times what the average owner gets, I, I I sit here and go, that is fundamentally the problem. But but good luck in you know, we can't even get support. You can't get them to support during this period. How are you gonna do that? Why? We can keep paying them the ridiculous taxes we already pay. I don't see a world where they're going to say, okay, well, let's make it so you pay us less. I just, I don't, I don't see it. Interesting. Very dire again, but interesting comments. So, so um, as a way to wrap up, Andrew, um, the last five, six months have been hard for every restaurant operator and, and every business owner uh, in the country. There must have been a lot of lessons learned along the way for, for, you know, for you as a leader. What would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned through this pandemic as it relates to your own business? Yeah, look, I think I think the the number one the look there's there's the pros and the cons. I think the things that made me uh, I'll, I'll start with the negative so we can end on a positive. The negative is <laughs> you as an entrepreneur in Canada, you're on your own. The government uh, is not here to help you. They are here to more than likely they're just going to make your life more challenging, more difficult. And even when they try and help you or they try and help society, uh, like with CERB, one of the hardest things when the restaurant industry in the early days of this pandemic was you couldn't get people to come back to work in a lot of cases because of CERB. And so, so you know, you need to be able to prepare and weather uh, for bad times for a lot longer than you would ever dream of, um, I think is important and being, you know, I've always been paranoid and I felt my job was always, you know, plan for the worst and hope for the best, no matter how much that makes me seem and come off as negative. And then on the other side of things, I would say, what I've learned is there are amazing humans out there. We have amazing employees who have given their blood, sweat, and tears, who, who countless folks who, who, who put in countless hours despite being uh, laid off or reduced hours or whatever it was. They did what they had to do because they believed in our industry. They believed in what we're trying to accomplish as a company. They believed in us. To our guests, who to the first people who came and did grocery with us, to doing takeout and delivery, to the first folks who went to indoor dining, those are heroes. To to some of our our, 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 our events and, and, you know, you know, we hold a lot of deposits. We don't have a refund policy on our, on our deposits. And we had, we had a charity call me and I was like, Oh, geez, they're going to, they're, they're going to cancel their event and say, can we, can we get our deposit back? And, and the, the real heroes were, they called and said, can we just postpone our event, but we'll pay you the full, the rest of the money we owe for next year because we're sure you're hurting. And you're saying, wow. so, you know, there are great people out there and I think that's where creating a corporate culture where, where look, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of folks out there that are not happy with our situation as a company and as an industry and all that kind of stuff. And I get it. But if you build the right corporate culture, if you pick the right kind of people to surround yourself with and get on that bus, uh, you know, you won't feel so lonely when, when things get that bad. And I think on my end, you know, we've taken the attitude of saying, look, never surrender, never give up. Uh, despite it feels like every workday, which is a, which is pretty much every day, I feel like I get punched in the face and I get knocked down and I got to get up again over and over and over again, that there are going to be green shoots on the horizons. Our events business, the number of calls, again, are up three or 400% from where they were a couple of months ago. A big chunk of that's because it's from a low base, but there mm -hmm. is, there is, you know, there is hope out there that things will get better. There are a lot of industries that are doing very, very well during this pandemic and that hopefully we'll be out there spending money uh, again and, and, and all of that. And so I think there's, there's always going to be hope no matter how dark, dismal and terrible it seems. Um, 
I think you've just got to continue to to get up and keep fighting. And 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 I don't begrudge anyone who's had to give up and throw in the towel because I I know how hard it is every day to, to 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 get punched in the face and have to get up again and again and again to do it. But I think that as an entrepreneur, you didn't do this because it was easy. Uh, you did this because you love it and you're passionate about it. And you know, I'd say the last couple of Sundays, I've been substantially less depressed than the other one because <laughs> I'm excited about some of the stuff on the horizon and and people are thinking about what's going to ha- you know going to happen a couple of years out from now. And and again, I, I think that you know uh, the dawn, the night is always darkest before the dawn. Uh, to, to quote Marvel, you know, it is true. It'll be the worst that it'll be, and then it'll get better. And if you're around to be there for that, uh, in my opinion, those who have been able to take on the unrelenting abuse over and over and over again, the reward will be that there will be more opportunity for you than in any other time in our industry. Uh, and, and, and hopefully you will, you will, you will be uh, ready to take advantage of that and, and, and do that because of all the pain that you've, you, you've suffered during this. Well, those are great words to end on. Um, A lot there to think about and to consider. And uh, I know these have been very trying days for for your company and for the industry. And I guess as we move into the end of uh, August and and into potentially a new school year, we'll we'll all wait with bated breath to see what happens as the next step on this journey. Uh, But thank you so much for your time, Andrew, and for your energy, your insights, and and your expertise. And uh, good luck. Thank you very much for, for 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 speaking with me and shining some light on on the challenges of um, of our industry and and um, yeah to everyone else out there that's in this industry don't give up keep fighting. Well, thank you, and above all, stay safe. You too. Thanks. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.